Welcome to the Operate Podcast, where we give you a behind-the-scenes look at company building from the perspective of the builders themselves. This is how we operate. Welcome to the Operate Podcast. I'm Kerry Ransom. Today's episode is sponsored by BankTech Ventures, the first strategic investment fund designed by community banking industry for community bank innovation and investment. BankTech identifies leading products and technologies for community banks and works with the founders and management teams of those companies to maximize the impact they can have for community banks and their businesses. If you're a bank looking to innovate and invest in the future of your bank and your industry, or a founder who wants to work with community banks, reach out to BankTech Ventures, banktechventures.com. I am super excited to have Kia Haslett with me today on the podcast. She's the managing editor of Bank Director, where she leads the web content group and is also responsible for a lot of the magazine feature articles that we all get to read. She's covered the full spectrum and continues to cover the full spectrum of banking from policy, strategy, trends, technology, and even M&A. She has it's such a unique vantage point from my perspective for what's happening in banking and banking technology, which I spend a lot of time thinking about. I know she'll have a lot of great insights to share today. Kia, thanks for joining me. Thank you so much for having me, Carrie. Absolutely. So we were having an email discussion recently about the definition of community when it comes to community banks. So let's start there. I'd love to hear your current thinking on this topic. I started covering um, the financial industry in 2010 um, in the wake of the financial crisis and on the cusp or um, right before the passage of the Dodd-Frank Act. And so for, for years, my definition was basically the regulatory definition, $10 billion in assets. Banks that are um, above it um, have uh, like the interchange and they have a new regulator and banks below it are just the community bank. But I, I think in the last 10 years, we have seen a real evolution of business models within that $10 billion bank space. And increasingly, community banking is separate from other business models that banks that are under $10 billion have. Um, so as part of that definition, I think you'd want to include things like complexity or a business line. Mm. You could also use the definition of that a community is a place. Um, I know that banks probably are going to cringe that I bring this up, but it's almost like that credit union definition of a field of membership. Mm -hmm. um, it is a defined space and place and has different functions and roles in people's lives. But increasingly, as people are online and drawn to groups by which they have interests and affiliations with mm. or lifestyles, I think that banks should really challenge themselves to be creative with community groups and who is in a community and what are those needs of the community, that communities can be bound by, by things outside of a place. And I think that as banking evolves, that definition has to evolve with it. And there are just going to be community banks that are bound by business model or bound by a place. And then there just are going to be small banks under $10 billion in assets that don't otherwise fit that definition or fit a different definition. Super interesting. So many, so many places to go from here. So, you know, there, there's a saying that you, you've probably heard before, you know, there, there are riches in the niches and, 
you know, I think one of the things that's an interesting feature about our economy, obviously, is the fact that we've had thousands and thousands of these community banks. Their niche was their historically their geographic footprint, their geographic community. And so if you're a bank CEO, let's put yourself in that position today. And you're saying, okay, the community around us geographically is, has changed or is, is going to continue to change. Competition there has changed. How do we start to redefine our future or best communities to serve? What, what, what would be the process you'd start to go through for that? Well, I think one, that's gotta be an iterative process. That is the question that you should always be asking yourself and always be challenging yourself to answer. Um, I constantly think about who is my audience and what does my audience need right now? Mm. And that will change as the economic cycle changes or as demographics change or as technology changes. And I always need to be, you know, as a reporter, I always need to be thinking about what, how can I serve my audience? Bankers in the same way need to be thinking about who is their community and how do they serve them? Mm. So that might be, you know, the question is, do you serve everyone who lives in a certain market, no matter um, if they are a retail consumer or a small business or a big business, do you serve all the businesses in a city, only certain businesses? When you Are you talking to your customers, employees about the friction they encounter in banking? What mm -hmm. needs aren't being met rather than just trying to say, well, we have a service that is close to the thing you want. You should just use that instead. I think bankers, and this is probably going to be a theme in our conversation today, I just think there needs to be a lot more curiosity. Hmm. And for, you know, as it comes to this question, who, do, who lives in your market? What kind of groups do those people belong to? And how, what kind of needs do they have? And how can the bank meet their needs? I think you could, most bankers could start with geography and go from there, but they've got to start, not end within, within their geography. Hmm. So, so many good thoughts there. That's, that's amazing. Thank you. So let's, let's go back. This, this has been such an interesting season of life for all of us, obviously, these last couple of years, um, particularly even for banks, uh, and, and I think community banks, where historically, banking was, you come to me, you come to my branch to do banking. And that didn't happen for a significant period of time over the last two years when they were forced to close, forced to figure out how to do things. And you know, I, I say often, I was amazed. I benefited. I got, I got a PPP loan from one of the community banks in, in my community. Um, my bigger bank that I was doing business with didn't do it. And I think people around the country benefited from that and the community banks stepping up and providing that. And I, I often say they punched way above their weight class in, in providing that. And so it was super impressive. And at the same time, you know, I have these feelings at times of, okay, are they catapulting forward because of that? Are they reverting back to where they were before? How has how your thinking changed about community banks from where it was two years ago because of what's happened? Yeah, I mean, it really cannot be understated um, how rapid the economic and technology cycle was, especially for our community banks. Um, we know from bank director research surveys, um, I joined bank director in 2019, so I got a full mm -hmm. year of surveys before mm -hmm. the pandemic happened, that banks knew they needed to be digitizing their services, especially loan applications and other backend software that just allowed for a lot more flexibility in work. And the pandemic really underlined how essential that service needs to be. 
I wish I felt like I was seeing more banks take the lessons of the PPP and remote work and really install them in, um, in their business model. I mean, we just went through a two-year experiment of can everyone do their jobs from home? What are the lessons we have taken from that? How do we take that learning and that trust we built and create new work arrangements, new hybrid arrangements? And I, I think there is you know, too many banks seem to want to go back to what is old and familiar and, you know, put the lessons of remote work behind them. And I don't know if I think that that's the move right now, given what we know about the shift in work, um, you know, the people leaving their jobs and seeking other types of flexible arrangements. Um, and I know banking is, is, struggling with that, as well as a long-term demographic issue, needing to bring in new talent, especially in technology, as well as um, replace retiring executives. I, again, I think banks need to be a lot more curious about, you know, where do we go from here? Where do we need to go next, rather than how can we go back to before the pandemic? And then separately, also in the last two years, there's been a period of, um, there's been a lot of change in technology, um, we saw um, there was an evolution of banks with, with less than $10 billion in assets, kind of at the margins, playing around with what it means to be a bank. Um, so if you think, you know, Carrie, I know that you've, you've seen in the last two years, a number of fintechs acquire or be approved for bank charters. We are seeing a really interesting evolution about why those companies want to have a bank charter, what they see the bank charter as being as part of their technology. Um, we've also seen the explosion of banking as a service, and we've really seen um, the power of that business model. That's also an activity that tends to be concentrated under $10 billion in assets, especially on the deposit side because of the debit interchange. And those changes have, have made me think a lot about bank business models, customer bases, um, what do banks do, and then how do banks make money? So that's just, that's just been the last two years. Amazing. And I mean, just such a highlight there, Kia, of your curiosity, right? You, I mean, you, you just laid out a whole bunch of really interesting topics. And frankly, a lot of these are just questions of what, where's this going to go? Where's this going to go? And I think that that's what's fun and why I so enjoy these conversations is because we can speculate, but a lot of this is, is going to be experimented and you, you get to see this laboratory and that's where you sit is such a, a fun place to, to be. So let's go back a bit in your personal story. Uh, we jumped we jumped right in, you know, let 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 us get to know you a little bit more. So you've been doing this as you said since 2010. So it's been over 10 years. How, how did you get into this world? Um so that's kind of a two-part question. I very I do have an origin story which is that uh, my dad, when I was in third grade, showed me this board game called Acquire, which is about hotel M&A and you mm. build up little hotels and then they take over other hotels and you have like stock that has to be cashed out. And, you know, I don't know if that's an appropriate game for a nine-year-old, you know, <laughs> Monopoly, whatever. But, Monopoly, yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. And to me, I was I I thought this game was so fun and it really just introduced the topic of M&A just probably a little mm -hmm. too early, but share, you know, share ownership and things like that. 
And then several years later, I became a soccer referee um, mm. at age 13. That's when you can become a soccer referee. And my parents just let me have control over all of my money that I was making as a 13 year old. I had a, a checkbook, I had a, a deposit account at the local credit union. And so I kind of learned a lot of personal finance uh, trial by fire. Amazing. And I became really interested in how people use money. Um, I also separately knew that I wanted to be a writer. Someone told me when I was in third grade that I was good at writing. So I just ended up channeling a lot of my academic effort at being good at writing and reading. And so when I'm in high school, I, I, you know, I'm trying to think about career paths in college. Journalism just happened, you know, felt very natural to me. And then my interest in business and, and economics as in the cusp of the financial crisis really um, cemented for me that that's where I wanted to spend a lot of my time. And then when I graduated, um, sorry, I, I've been covering since I graduated in 2011. I've not been, it's, so it's, it's more than 10 years, but it's sure. not as many as I said it was. Um, you know, we're coming out of the, the financial crisis. Mm -hmm. I have seen just how important banks are to the country and then also how polarizing they are. And I was very fortunate enough to be given a chance to um, cover financial uh, banking um, at SNL Financial in Charlottesville, Virginia, now S&P Global Market Intelligence. And that really kind of cemented to me this like fascination with, with banks and the role that they play in the economy and what do we do about these really important questions um, about safety and soundness, about you know, financial access and um, about innovation. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Well, I mean, you're, you're, you're living it. And I think that's, what's, what's so, uh, so cool. So as you think about that, I mean, I'm sure you have given you, you studied journalism, you have a lot of other friends and colleagues that are in totally disparate industries. How, how, what do you think is most unique about covering this industry as a, as a journalist? I think the pandemic has really shown to me how exciting it is to cover an industry that's at the nexus of the economy. As mm -hmm. the economy goes, so do banks. Mm -hmm. um, you know, again, we have we've we flirted briefly in the financial crisis with what if all the big banks failed, and while we might not like how that question got answered or how you know what we did as a result of that question, I think it really showed us that banking is essential to the economy. Um, and that regulators will take steps to, to fashion it into an industry that's safer and more mm -hmm. accessible. And then we also have, the, you know, in the wake of that, 10 years of creativity around what it means to be a bank, what do banks do, and how do um, financial services, how do payments, how do all these things that people need in their lives, how do banks and non-banks fill that gap? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's such a moving target, right? I mean, yeah, it you know, continues just, to evolve today, that's right? right? And I mean, what I even think about in many cases in my own life, I mean, I, I got a text message yesterday about a deposit going into an account and it was a non-bank account that they got transferred in there. And just the, the fact that we now have money sitting in a lot of, places disparately mm -hmm. that that we probably never did in some cases it's just it could be reward points for some account that really is convertible in some way or now now with crypto and it's, it's such a, a interesting landscape that i'm sure even the topics that you cover 
today are much broader and in some cases a lot different than when you first stepped into this 10 years ago. And, and the other thing too is everyone, everyone has a bank. Banking is very a relatable industry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think that, you know, it, it's, it touches almost every, you know, every American in the United States, this, this topic of, of how should the banking industry be run and what do banks do? Sure. Totally. Well, it's clear with your level of energy and excitement about it, which is awesome. I mean, what, what has been the thing that's maybe most disappointed you about covering banking? Well, I love covering banking. Mm-hmm. And that also means that I can have a lot of strong feelings yes. when I get exasperated. I think, you know, I brought up earlier, I think I've been a little disappointed by banks wanting to return to, you know, mm-hmm. the full um, on-site work environment. Um, I And knowing that banks are also separately struggling with trying to hire workers. Now, that's, you know, that's how a business should conduct itself sure. and run itself. Sure. Uh, when it comes to innovation and customer experience, I just feel like banks really did not care about that in the first five years after the financial crisis. So mm-hmm. like 2011 to 2016, I just really felt like most banks, most of the 5,000 banks in the country did not seem to be prioritizing um, externally the customer experience. And now it's created a situation where they're playing catch up mm-hmm. and I'm not sure how many will be able to do it successfully and authentically. Um, one thing I've been thinking a lot about is payments. Um, I, you know, learning about the payment rails and, you know, the role banks played in facilitating payments and the role checks played and the role, you know, these fed wires that the banks used to be this origin points of these payments and, and the radical shift that payments have gone from, you know, um, checks and cash and banks to cards and phones and the internet, I really feel like banks had capitulated a little bit on their natural advantage Mm -hmm. um, of having access to the payment rails and weren't really thinking again about how people wanted to use money and the pain points that they were experiencing in trying to pay others or get paid, especially in the digital context. Um, And so now I'm looking at this, you know, completely, um, scattered payment landscape filled with non-bank payment intermediaries like mm-hmm. Venmo, PayPal, Stripe, Square, um, Cash App. Banks are letting these companies into their accounts because they don't have really a, a way a, a way to uh, keep them out. And you know, I don't know if banks actually really care that you know, us as bank customers have have to use non-bank services because our banks did not care about providing a service that mm-hmm. um, would allow us to do this activity. And that's uh, been really disappointing. Yeah, that that there's so much good, uh, good stuff there. You know, first, first reaction, I think that I have, you know, having built a couple non-bank fintech companies myself, really the, the core essence of both of those was a way better customer experience. That was the, the, right. the genesis of it. And to your point, is like where people fail, others will seize that, entrepreneurs will seize that opportunity. And a lot of the early innovation in FinTech, from my perspective, is just better experience. And it's mm-hmm. not better products in a lot of cases, but a better experience makes people believe it's a better product. And sometimes that's enough. So I've, I've often said, you know, the bar was so low, I didn't have to do 
that much to be better, where in a lot of technology innovation, you have to be way faster, way cheaper, way better. I think the first wave of fintech was a lot of just better experience. And so I'm excited about the next wave being way better products and way, right. way more personalized, way more timely. And I think we're, we're barely into that era, which means there's still a lot more to do. As I think about your comment on, on payments, it makes me sort of think about this concept that money is kind of like water and that it will find the lowest point, you know, gravity, it, you know, you have a water leak, it, it, it will find where it needs to run. And I think money will find its way to the places where it needs to go. And if you see payments, all this payment activity has been about people want low friction ways to, right. to do business, and to do commerce. And, and it's, you know, they're going to find a way. And the other thing too, is I, I actually don't like that. I live in a world with so many payment apps. Mm -hmm. I think that that is really inefficient. Super it feels inefficient. really unsafe, that's right. but that's the world we live in because no one cared about creating a unified experience. Mm -hmm. um, I have joked about how um, like real-time payments in this country, we're like five years behind Mexico right. with real-time yeah. payments. Mm -hmm. And I really like when we talk about being innovative, like, <laughs> Innovative for whom, you know, I, why does it take me, someone made a point that the people, the thing people care about most is getting paid. They don't necessarily care about their deposits being insured. They don't necessarily care mm -hmm. about like having like, I don't know, a CD or, or whatever they, and so if you can't really address people's most fundamental urgent issue in a way that's really meaningful and authentic, we will just go somewhere else. And it is, you know, now for me a little too late for, to be adopting another payment app right. just because it's one that my bank, it, you know, gives me. Yeah. And we didn't talk about this previously. What's your opinion about this super app concept that obviously has taken hold in some other very large countries hasn't really happened here. Do you think we're, we're going to end up five years from now where most people have that super app? Yeah, it's interesting because I think that moments of transition are really like really important times to get a user. Mm -hmm. And so as a user who feels like I have a ton of apps already that do their one thing, I don't necessarily think I would be a good super app user. But if you could get someone in college mm -hmm. who is like, here is your, here is your meal plan and here is your bank account. And also here is the student directory to talk to everyone um, in your school as a social network. Yeah, that's a, that's probably a, a user who's more inclined and ready for that app. Um, I know that, you know, I, I personally bank with um, SoFi. SoFi is trying to sell me a lot of financial products. I don't necessarily go for all of those. Um, I don't need them. I certainly consider the financial products as it comes up in my life, but mm -hmm. I personally, like, I think I don't trust big tech enough and I kind of like everything being broken so that maybe no one has a complete view sure. of my, my yeah. life. So, but I, I don't, you know, I'm not, I'm just saying I might not be a good user of the super app, whether or not there's a, the right super app for the right users is to be determined in the United mm -hmm. States. Well, your last point there too, of, of I, I, maybe it's better off that I have things separated a little bit so I don't have single single pipe, single thread risk. Yeah. 
I kind of uh, like I've it had people argue on. that with me. It's like, I don't, yeah, I want to bank with somebody different than I have my financial advice that I have my insurance because I want that, you know, people being held accountable mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to me, me having, you know, a single, which is, it's interesting that to me, that comes down to fundamental issue of trust is like, I don't trust anybody enough to put my entire financial life on them. Um, seems like a missed opportunity. I was just reading a, a research report. It was um, a data set that came from failed banks. So maybe, so I do have questions about this data set, but they looked at the role that um, relationship banking played in the rate customers received for um, deposits under the insurance cap, mm -hmm. um, insured deposits. And they found that the that relationship banking hurt depositors, that the longer you had a relationship with a bank, the less competitive your mm -hmm. rate was. Mm -hmm. Also, this relation, your com the competitiveness of the rate was not determined or influenced by large banks. And it also wasn't determined or influenced by credit unions. It was influenced by other community banks in close proximity to this failed bank. Now, again, I have questions about that data set. It's very I don't, I don't know if I think CDs are the best um, deposit product to pick, but I do sort of think that um, you know, there can be some, some complacency that can come from having a very long-term relationship with a customer. And you know, when you have a, you know, a bifurcated or a scattered financial relationship, hopefully everyone is really trying to actively increase that wallet mm -hmm. share and give you the best products available. Yeah, I, I, that's, that is so central and such a missed opportunity. The idea that, like, why can't you be repricing my financial products all the time is, is a topic that I have explored for years and years. And to your, your comment earlier is, is people get complacent. It's like they just count on that relationship enduring mm -hmm. and uh, they're not paying attention to it. I don't even know if it's always intentional, but I've seen it and it's not just in banking. I think this happens in every yeah. aspect. Your, your financial advisor keeps your, your program on autopilot. Your insurance agent just keeps sending you the renewal for your policies without thinking about has your risk or things change. It's the same. I think it, it happens across the, the landscape. So yeah. such, a, such a high, high important point to, to stress. And that's a really interesting study. And frankly, sadly, yeah, not surprising. Yeah, I'd love to see it. So I think I know the answer after some of this conversation, but from where you're sitting right now, what area, what topic are you really keen to follow over the next few years? Well, this is going to sound a little stupid having covered banking for 10 years, but I have been really enraptured by the question of um, what is a bank and what do banks do? Mm. Going back to um, that spate of fintechs um, seeking and acquiring bank charters, I think we are seeing a lot of active reimagining of the bank charter as a um, form of technology, as a as almost like a a, a, a key to unlock mm. um, different types of services versus a gate um, that keeps other people out of or other companies out of the financial industry. I think we're seeing a lot of active experimentation um, from some, you know, banking as a service banks, as well as other non-banks around what it means to be a bank. Um, now, the question of uh, what do banks do or what makes banks special is actually a really old question. Um, and I came across a paper um, written in 1982 by E. Gerald Corrigan, who was um, the managing director of Goldman Sachs and a former Fed president, hmm. who came up with three different answers about what makes banks special. 
Um, banks offer transaction accounts. Mm -hmm. They are the backup source of liquidity for other institutions and they are the transmission belt for monetary policy. Now that's the answer in 1982. All of those things are true. I don't know if I think they're the most, the three things that make a bank special, but I thought it was really interesting that it's not just lending mm -hmm. that makes banks special and I, and, or makes a bank a bank. And we are even seeing like some, you know, GECO in um, Minnesota has acquired a bank charter and they don't, they don't do any lending. Um, and so, you know, now I think about banks, um, especially the banking as a service banks um, and, and the role that they play in facilitating and empowering banking access mm -hmm. to others that are, you know, more interested in creating um, a customer experience and or targeting certain communities. Um, so I think that that will be maybe a space where there's a lot of experimentation, um, embedded banking and things like that, you know, DeFi. Um, and so, um, yeah, I just, <laughs> I think that maybe banks will want, you know, if you work at a bank, sure, you've got the day-to-day -day aspects of, of your of your operation, but you, there is probably some sort of curiosity that can be, um, you can ask yourself, you know, in addition to who is our community, what do, what do banks do? What can we do? Mm -hmm. um, not what do we do, but what's possible? Um, and I think we're gonna just see just a lot more um, playing at the margins of established finance um, and trying to answer that question. Oh, that's so good. So good. Thank you. And I am excited to see all the learnings that you will have and share with all of us who read Bank Director. So that, that is uh, certainly, we're, we're going to have many more conversations uh, over, the, over the coming years. It, one, of the, one of the reasons I really wanted to have you on, Kia, I, I have found in my career that journalists often have this right combination. You've used the word a bunch. You clearly have it. Uh, curiosity. But also, you know, I'll call it skepticism, and I think a healthy skepticism, and that enables you to spot trends and see changes earlier than most others do. And so it's clearly obvious that that banking is changing. You just talked about it, and you know, I just I know you wrote recently that your bank activities are increasingly moving out of the branch and onto our phones. Banks have been closing branches for years. You know, is that? Is that enough in your mind for them uh, to, to continue? You know, I, uh, I have so many thoughts about branches. Um, I wrote a piece um, probably 12 months, 15 months into the pandemic that just said, should you close 20% of your branches? Because I had just come across like six, seven different banks across the country that were just closing 20% of their branches because they realized that their customers probably had shifted behavior enough that they could just, again, 20% at one, at one time without a merger is, is a significant mm -hmm. amount of locations to be closing. You know, I think that branches are a chicken and egg problem for the, for the industry. I think that many bankers tell themselves that they their customers like coming into the branch, but haven't really interrogated whether or not they have given their customers another option mm -hmm. short of coming into the branch. Mm -hmm. um, and that you can, like, you're not being honest with yourself if, if you haven't really explored that. Um, I also think that when we centralize 
um, act banking activities to a branch, it means we're not going to invest in the customer experience on other channels. And I would, I would just really, I would be very curious and very skeptical about the amount of money that is spent on physical locations and on staffing physical locations. And what do those locations do versus what do we want our bank to mean to our customers? And if I can, I, I just had a friend in town and she was telling, she has a capital one venture card. I'm so sorry mm -hmm. to be mentioning right. a large bank on, on your podcast. Okay. She's a capital one venture card. She lives in Chicago. She lives very close to a capital one cafe. Mm -hmm. And she goes, I swear to God, they are like, they must be laundering money in that cafe because they give me my coffee so cheap. I get pastries at like, they're half off after 2 PM. I go to that. I go to the capital one cafe every single day and I don't understand how it makes money. And I said, you know, friend, yeah. do you like capital one? Do you like your capital one card? Do you, and she goes, yeah, I like my card and I like going to these cafes. I have actually told people that they should get a capital one card when they need a credit card. So in part because of the cafes, right? In part because of this physical location. So I explained to her that, you know, this cafe is in a full service branch that, you know, that, mo that if you went into that branch or that location and you had an issue with your bank, they will help you solve the problem on your phone or laptop using your technology, not theirs, because it's not a branch, it's not a full service branch, but that capital one has made has made this location part of her lifestyle. Mm -hmm. It has engendered goodwill that she would consider opening a Capital One bank account because of the convenient location. And so, you know, I just think that that is, you know, Capital One cafes have thought about space and place creativity creatively. What does this location need to do for our customers? Mm -hmm. um, and what can our customers do for themselves? It is not always about solving bank problems. In fact, I would argue if you're walking into a bank because you're having a problem, the bank has failed. That's right. Um, and, and that you, you um, that they should be really, really serious about why could you not solve that issue by yourself or why couldn't you solve it remotely? But then think about this physical idea of place differently than like branch location, you know, and site of locations and transactions. So I just have been fascinated by the fact that my friend just was like, so confused, but also love these cafes. And to me, that's, that's just, that's a genius. Um, you know, that's a genius move because they've got this customer for as long as she lives in Chicago. That's right. Well, and I mean, it's, it's not totally dissimilar from the Apple store, which in the beginning, the Apple store was a marketing expense for Apple that all of a sudden they realized, wow, people really want to come in here and this is going to be a huge revenue driver for them. In Capital One's case, it, it absolutely got started as a marketing investment that is a guarantee of being measured of what kind of business impact, like, like you said, is having. And I love the idea of it's, it's become integrated into her lifestyle as opposed oh, to yeah, me having to go somewhere that I don't want to have to go to because it's not working is very different than choosing to go there for what you anticipate to be a positive experience. I just, I can't, when is the last time you heard someone say like, you should really get this credit card. It's a great credit card. Also, they've got this fantastic location. I mean, I That's just, right. you can't pay for that kind of That's advertising, right. that kind of recommendation. 
Yeah, that's that's huge. Well, I was going to ask you next, you know, if you were consulting with a bank CEO, what would you say? And I think you just said it. So I'm going to I'm going to change uh, and and go to the next one, which is on the other side. I mean, we're seeing so much startup activity in fintech and, and banking technology and so much venture capital is flowing into this industry. If you were talking to a, an early founder that's trying to play in this bank technology ecosystem, what advice would you have for her? Well, I feel um, as outside as I feel of banking, sometimes I feel even um, the fintech space is even more uh, is <laughs> a, a way different world than banking. I'll, I'll just say it that way. Okay. Um, you know, I, I think for um, fintechs, you know, for financial technology companies that specifically want to work with banks um, and not necessarily directly compete with them, I think it's probably good advice that they learn about banking, they learn what is a bank, what makes banks special, going back to that question. Um, learning about you know regulation, what the role banks play in the economy, and then specifically how crises and cycles work. Um, I also, you know, I I don't know what kind of conversations that there have been having in the banking or in the fintech space around um, like specifically like the Zillow um, algorithm house flipping that cost Zillow eight hundred million dollars. Um, I I. I would be a lot more skeptical of the role algorithms play when, uh, when making big money decisions. Um, and I, and I think bankers probably share that perspective, even if they're not thinking specifically about Zillow. And then, um, me personally, I, um, I would pick names that don't make me roll my eyes and have vowels in the correct place. That is my personal, we don't see that in banking all the time, but I see it a lot in fintechs. And so that's just my personal pet peeve. That's so funny. So funny. All right. This has been awesome. And exactly, I knew this was going to be a fun conversation. So thank you for indulging me in, in doing this. Last question I have, and I know it's not something that we're going to solve today. And you, you mentioned this is kind of your current obsession, but let's, let's end with this. What is your current definition of a bank? Oh God, I think I, I kind of, I think I lean towards yeah. like the most broad definition. Mm -hmm. um, and honestly, I think it's a definition that should both inspire and challenge people. I think a bank is a company with a bank charter mm. and it's a company that wants to follow bank regulations, but I can't tell you what that company does. Sure. I can't necessarily tell you who that company serves and I can't tell you why they want a bank charter. But I really think that, you know, companies that hold bank charters, banks and, and everyone else, they really need to start thinking about that charter as permissions, a permission structure as the key to unlocking innovation rather than, you know, I'm a bank and, and we're all banks here and we, because we all do the same thing and we mm -hmm. keep out other companies that want to get access to a bank charter. Kia, that's so great. And I think that will challenge so many people to, to really think differently and creatively. <laughs> and it should. And, and I think that's the, that's the exciting part um, for, for those of us like you and me that, that live on that change edge of the, of the world, right? And, and get to participate in that. Well, thank you so much for joining me. Such amazing perspective and, and frankly, wisdom. Um, you, you know, your role is so important in this. I, I like to call it ecosystem. I think it'll be fascinating to see if 
we end up with our first ecosystem bank as opposed to a community bank and, and how they start to uh, define that. But it's so important. I mean, it keeps, keeps us all on our toes. You, you keep us all informed and frankly challenged. And I think there was so much in this conversation today that, that did that. Thank you so much. Well, Carrie, thank you so much for having me. I really, as you can tell, I love talking about banking and the essence of banking and these existential questions. I think that they can never be too far from our day-to-day -day operations um, because we always want to, we, we should always, you know, you, me, and all the banks need to be thinking about what's next and what's possible. Absolutely. Well, we'll talk soon. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Operate Podcast. If you like this conversation, as a favor to me, you can rate us, review us, or subscribe, or tell your friends. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Operate Podcast. Until next week, get out there and operate.